0: setting there, please find 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel chapter 24 is where we will be this evening. When you find that, then look up here and let me just speak to you a moment and we'll begin. Tonight we are continuing in our series on David, David's wilderness years, the fashioning of a king. The first... Message in this series was on the Sunday morning of March 13th, and I preached a message entitled "Preparing for the Preparation." The second message was that evening, where we learned about seeds sown, and then uh, that Wednesday following, patterns emerge. Certain patterns that showed up in Saul's life, and David's life, and Jonathan's life. Now that we're going further. In this biblical study, we're finding uh, that these things are coming into stark relief. We can see them well. Then the next Sunday morning on the 20th, we dealt with the final separation. That was when David actually left the palace for the last time. Saul tried to kill him, and he left the palace the last time. And then we have the uh, the uh, priest and the Philistines, and that was in the evening on the 20th. and David began to run and, of course, went out and and at a place called Nob, and, and uh, Metahimelech, and, and that sort of thing. And then uh, Sunday morning, or uh, Wednesday rather, of that week, was the Sabbath is for man, slash a time of extremes. And I uh, really actually gave you two almost distinct messages, both coming from that same passage there. The Sabbath is for man, and the time of extremes. And then uh, this past Sunday morning... I dealt with close calls and needed strength. I did that in the morning. Sunday night, I was going to preach what I have tonight, and since then I've put more study into it, but um, Sunday night I had just a few words written down as a preamble to talk to us about allowing God to search us. Dare to let God search you is what I ended up entitling it and putting it out in publication. And... Um, That God got in that, and as I began to go and God began to expand as what it was, that ended up being the entire message. And I never really got to what I thought I was going to preach that night, but I believe I was on on point for the message. And so, uh, the eighth message, then uh, uh, tonight, is entitled Word Directed, Not Circumstance Led. Word Directed, Not Circumstance Led. And the reason for the title is going to be obvious when we go through the chapter. I believe it will. And uh, I'm going to read through the chapter with very minimal comment. And then I'm going to come back and uh, give you some particular nuggets from the text there. Um, I want you to understand something when we start to read this, though. I want you to understand that a very important passage in the Bible, a very important statement in the Bible, it's repeated twice, was not yet written. At this point. And yet, David, who would be the prophet, because he was a prophet as well as a king, he would be the one who would give those verses, the two verses where this shows up, but he was living it before he penned it. And the truth of the verse I'm going to quote to you, what it says. Showed up back as far as Abraham in his life and the realities with God protecting him. Here's the verse, it's familiar with many people. He said, The the Lord said, Touch not mine anointed and do my prophets no harm. Touch not mine anointed and do my prophets no harm. As we read the chapter tonight, you're going to find David making a reference that nearly coincides with that. What's really interesting is uh, that shows up. With the first time, the first psalm that David gave to Asaph. Asaph was the man that David appointed to be over the singers and over those who were the musicians that would lead in the song and the praise of Israel. Asaph, the first psalm from David that he had delivered to him, had that phrase in it touch not mine anointed, neither do my prophets any harm. And that one was given to Asaph. It's recorded. That whole thing is, if you want to mark it down, check it out later, is in First Chronicles chapter 16. And the occasion was the Ark of the Covenant coming back into Israel. And so that's when that first showed up. Second time that phrase is, is recorded, as, as I've quoted it to you, is in Psalm 105. But in what's happening, as we read here in 1 Samuel 24, it's not yet written down by the hand of man from the mouth of God, although we know the Word of God settled forever in heaven. And so the truth of it was already being, being uh, uh, lived out with that. So let me show you some things. And as I said to you, I'm going to read through and just very minimal uh, comment, and then we'll come back into this. And uh, let's pray for God to open our understanding as we begin to read His Word. Let's pray together. Father, I want to uh, emphasize exactly what needs the most time here with this group gathered. And Lord, I pray you'll bless. Give them ears to hear. And uh, Lord, may I speak in a way which is easy to follow and clear and to the point of the message. And I pray you'll bless, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Chapter 24, it says, It came to pass when Saul was returned from following the Philistines. You remember that last week? That's one of the only comments I'm to make to you. Remember David and his men were going on one side of a, a rocky protruding to mountain area? And Saul and his men were on the other side and they were just getting ready to capture David and the Philistines came into the land and Saul and his army had to go after the Philistines and so David was able to escape. And so I just want to bring that to remembrance and let's read again. It came to pass when Saul was returned from following the Philistines that it was told him saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheep coats, by the way, where was a cave, and Saul went in to cover his feet, which meant he was going to rest. He was, he was uh, taking a little rest during, during that time. And David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. And the men of David said unto him, Behold, the day of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemies into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. Then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privately. Skirt meaning the bottom area of the fabric. And so he cut that off. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. And he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David stayed his servants with these words and suffered them not to rise against Saul. But Saul rose up out of the cave and went on his way. David also arose afterward and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My Lord the King. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped down his face to the earth and bowed himself. And David said to Saul, Wherefore hearest thou men's words, saying, Behold, David seeketh thy hurt.' Behold, this day thine eyes have seen how the Lord had delivered thee today into mine hand in the cave, and some bade me kill thee. But mine eye spared thee, and I said I would not put forth mine hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yea, see the skirt of thy robe in my hand? For in that I cut off the skirt of thy robe, and killed thee not, know thou, and see, that there is neither evil nor transgression in mine hand. And I have not sinned against thee, yet thou huntest my soul to take it. The Lord judge between me and thee. And the Lord avenge me of thee. But mine hand shall not be upon thee. Imagine how disconcerting it was for Saul. David holds up this strip of fabric and Saul looks down and realizes while he was sleeping. Cut that off. As saith the proverb of the ancients, wickedness proceedeth from the wicked. But mine hand shall not be upon thee. After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom dost thou pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? The Lord therefore be judge, and judge between me and thee, and see, and plead my cause, and deliver me out of thine hand. It came to pass when David had made an end of speaking these words unto Saul that Saul said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, Thou art more righteous than I, for thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded thee evil. And thou hast showed this day how that thou hast dealt well with me, forasmuch as when the Lord had delivered me into thine hand, thou killest me not. For if a man find his enemy, will he let him go well away? Wherefore the Lord reward thee good, for that thou hast done unto me today. And now behold, I know well that thou shalt surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in thine hand. Swear now therefore unto me by the Lord, that thou wilt not cut off my seed after me, and thou wilt not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore unto Saul. And Saul went home, but David and his men got them up into the hold. Amazing events happening right there. And uh, you think about this theme I've told you that we have here, which is that being Word-directed, meaning by the Word of God, not circumstance-led. I believe there is a lot of damage done to God's work and to God's people by being circumstance-led instead of Word-directed. You can manipulate in your mind most circumstances to make it fit what you have as an agenda and a narrative. But if you judge by the Word of God, it will keep you straight. May I remind all of us about a certain prophet going down to Nineveh? God told him to go to Nineveh. But he went to a place called Tarshish. Anybody remember that prophet's name? Jonah. What ended up with Jonah? Where did he end up? Belle well, didn't he? But wait a minute. When Jonah, instead of going to Nineveh to preach, as God told him, instead of going there, he went, he went to go down to Tarshish. Guess what he did? He found a ship that was going to Tarshish. Circumstance was there. That is exactly how I am afraid even the majority of Christians live their life. Just looking, circumstance, circumstance. Why why, why are God's people so prone to just follow circumstances? I tell you, it's because God's people are weak in the Word of God. I told the young man sitting in the front of the chapel yesterday, I stopped, I was reaching and talked to him a minute. I so I'm going to tell you something I learned. I said, it was your age when I got saved. didn't know anything about the Bible, anything at all. I said, the best thing my preacher ever taught me is to judge everything by the Word of God. I said, you learn to do that or to keep you straight. And I told him. I said, you're going to meet a lot of good people and a whole truckload of idiots in your life. Now, the way you're going to be able to tell difference is by the Word of God. And that's the truth, too. And uh, so... David, what did he do? It's just amazing what happened as he was led by the Word. Let me give you some things with this. First of all, the place where he was is pretty amazing. Look at it. Uh, it says there he was in the place of in Gedi, it's called. And the Bible gives the definition in the next verse, and it exactly matches, of course, the Bible's the primary definer, but it's the rocks of the wild goats. And it's also called the fountain of the wild goats. The fountain of the wild goats. It's named after a fountain that is there. This place in Gedi, where he is, if you ever going to look at a picture of it, it's one of the most inhospitable-looking places you'll ever see. Just rugged and rough, it's on the western shore of the Dead Sea. If you're not familiar with the Dead Sea, it's the lowest point on land below sea level, I think over 1,250 feet below sea level, if my memory serves me correctly. And it's known as the Dead Sea because there basically is no aquatic life, nothing living in the waters. The reason why there's nothing living in the waters is because they're too, too salty. It's also known as the salt sea. And what happens is it has fresh water that comes into it from the Jordan River, but it does not have a way for water to go back out. So basically, it loses its water just by evaporation, and as that happens, it's more and more salty as it goes. And of course, it's a great spiritual picture of a life that just takes in and doesn't give out, and soon we become that way. Uh, with that, very, uh, very, very bad, and so on the western shore of the the Dead Sea. By the way, the Dead Sea is also where Sodom and Gomorrah were before God literally burnt them completely. And there's a lot of a lot of physical evidences there of that great event that happened. And so on the western shore of that of that uh, Dead Sea is this place called Engedi. But what's unusual about it? Um, the early name for it was uh, was Hazazon Tamar which meant the place of the palm trees. It still has lush growth there. It has a particular shrub that can grow up to 15 feet tall, and it's known as Sodom's apple. The Sodom apple. And you say, that's weird, or the apple of Sodom. You can find it either way. You look it up today and you'll find it. it grows extensively throughout parts of Africa and such. It's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting uh, shrub, they used to call it Osher, O-S-H-E-R, and uh, that shrub, uh, it grows a, a fruit that looks about like an apple. It's part of the nightshade family, so it takes in tomatoes and potatoes, and a lot of the nightshade family is poisonous, and the, it's why people wouldn't eat tomatoes for many, many years. But, the, uh, uh, but the, this particular plant, as it gets more yellow, it gets less toxic. However, they still recommend you don't eat the you don't ever eat the uh, fruit of it. It's just a bad idea. However, the milky substance that comes from the pl- uh, leaves and the different things there are actually used for medicines and such. Uh, the Masai tribe uses it in Africa and other places do. Uh, animals, some animals cannot eat it. It, it; it's poisonous to them. One animal that absolutely loves it and has almost zero effect no matter how much it eats is the elephant. And so it likes it. And I don't know if they're just too big to keel over or what the deal is with it exactly. But interesting thing. But this at this place in Gedi, which is the fountain of the wild goats, which is the rock of the goats there, that fountain is 600 feet above the Dead Sea, and it just still gives forth water. There's a fountain that comes out of the side of the mountain, and in that particular area... It waters it, and because of that, there's green, green, Used to be palm trees; they were cut down and destroyed in battle. But they—it's uh, referred to a couple of times in the Bible. And uh, you remember when Lot went towards Sodom? It said it was—it was lush and it was and it was uh, it was uh, beautiful and it was watered back then. Well, the only thing that really remains of that now is that area of Enegedai. But it does tell you how David could keep. 600 men with him. Alive. In a very barren area. I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not. It does present a problem though. When you have an area like that that has limited water supplies and you're hunting for somebody or you have a military thing going on, you don't have to control the whole area. You just have to take control of the water area. You don't have to hunt them out over all the thousands of square miles because they have to come to the water at some point or another. Control it, you control everything. And so uh, that's the situation they're dealing with. And so you have in Gedi. a pretty interesting place in the things that went with it there. And then look, if you will, also back there, notice in verse 2, um, in verse 2 it says, And Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel. Now, that ground where he knew David would be in that area is not a good ground for moving large amount of troops. And the supplies it takes and such, it's not a good place for that kind of maneuver. So what he has done, these are the, these are the elite troops. The first battle that Saul went into, he had been anointed king but was not yet coronated, was not yet put on the throne. And the first battle he was involved with, it was he and Samuel together on it. And uh, Saul took and cut up the oxen that he was plowing with when he heard they were being invaded. Or actually, he heard that one of the cities, uh, every man in the city was going to have his right eye put out because of the invaders. And Saul cut up the cut up oxen and sent them throughout Israel and said, this is what we're going to do to your oxen if you don't follow me to battle. It's his first move after being anointed king, even though he wasn't on the throne yet. At that time... 330,000 men mustered out, came to him, and they went to battle and won. Now he's taken basically a tenth, just under a tenth, but he's basically taken a tenth of what he had as an initial army. He's taken... The elite forces. In fact, the phrasing tells you that. Look at what it says in verse 2. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel. He didn't take the first 3,000 that came. He didn't take, you know, well, we're just going to take some from Benjamin. We're going to take this. He took the men who were the best militarily with him. These are his best troops. He's going for one purpose, and that's to kill David and those who are with him probably. And here's the thing about it. At that time, David had 600 men. So Saul's coming to him in a 5 to 1 ratio. He's got David outnumbered 5 to 1. David's in a pretty rough fix. And by the way, remember, he's being chased. Not for anything wrong he did, but he was a faithful servant and, and, and this has happened. So what happened? They get there and David and his men know that Saul and his men are coming. They hide back in this cave. You see, there's a word there in the verse, sheep coat. That's not something a cold sheep wears, okay? A sheep coat is is also called a sheep fold. It's a place where they would keep sheep at night or keep their flocks, whatever it would be. They would keep them at night if they knew the area was dangerous for predators or there were people that would uh, steal them and that sort of thing. Sometimes they were uh, stone walls they would build and put types of thorns on top. They like to use, especially if they came more into the winter season, they like to use caves and such to go in there where they could hide them. They'd be safe at night. And uh, so what happened was David and his men had went into this cave. Well, they're trying to hide from Saul and his men. And they're up in this cave. And you imagine people are looking out. They're coming this way, David. They're doing what? They're coming straight for this cave. Who is? It's Saul himself and his men. So you have this cave and you have, how many of you have ever been in a cave and had not turned the lights off? That absolute darkness in there. All right, that's that's an amazing thing. And so they get back in the back area of this cave and in the sides. And what happens? Saul and probably a couple of his men or however many come in out of the heat of the day and he lays down says to cover his feet. He's, He's going to rest for a little bit. So here's David. And here's Saul who has vowed to kill him laying there. And David's men go, kill him. Can you see this? This is what God said. God said he'd take care of you and take care of your enemies. Kill him. David wouldn't do it at all. Instead, he reached down and he cut off part of Saul's garment. And did you see what the Bible said about that when we read it? What, what did David feel about that? What did the Bible say happened? His heart smote him. He felt, oh, I should not have done that is trying to kill David. And David feels very bad for just cutting part of his garment off. Totally different men with that. It's pretty amazing. They it was caused. I I put this down. I I put down there's different vision and conflicting conclusions. Look in verse 4. Talking to you about being word led. Word directed rather rather than circumstance led. Look in verse 4. In the men of David, right, you have differing opinions here that read to, they reach different conclusions because they see something differently. Everybody agree that David's men and David both see King Saul laying there completely vulnerable. Everybody in agreement with that? That's pretty obvious, right? But they don't see the same thing. Listen to what I'm telling you. The same things in front of them, but they don't see the same thing because they're looking at it Differently. Look, look what the men say. The men said, Behold, the day which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, look at this. Watch it. I will deliver who? Look at the verse. Who? Thine enemy into thine hand. Hold on. Look in verse 6. David there, and he said unto his men. So his men said, That's what the Lord said, He'd deliver your enemy into your hand. Right there he is. That's your enemy. Verse 6. And he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto who? My master. master, The Lord's anointed. In other words, God put him there and God will take him down. Well, that's something that will come many years later in the book of Daniel, isn't it? Till thou know that the Lord God ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basest of men. And he said... That's my master. They said, David, that's your enemy. Kill him. There it is. That's your enemy. Kill him. He's your enemy. He's trying to kill you. Therefore, he is your enemy. And David said, he is my master because he's the Lord's anointed. Oh, wait a minute. I have sought me, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart. It says in the book of Acts 13, verse 22. Man after mine own heart. Yes. He loved what God loved and hated what God hated. He said, that was God's choosing. That's not mine. That's pretty powerful. That's pretty strong. Let me say to you also, David was still loyal in his heart. Look in verse 9. Look in verse 9 of that chapter. He said there, And David said to Saul, Wherefore hearest thou men's words? Saying, Behold, David seeketh thy hurt interesting when I read that. I just stopped and thought about that for a while. And really that part I didn't have Sunday night. There's a couple things in here because I just went back through everything and spent time with this. I believe I was following the Lord on what I did Sunday night so I went back and said, okay Lord, what, what is this? There will be something further that you have. David seemed to believe that Saul is either misinformed or prejudiced by others. Isn't it amazing the esteem he still holds him in? Why are you listening to what people are telling you, Saul? Now listen, from the clarity of the revealed Scripture, and we're looking at it now, we know good and well that God revealed in His Word, Saul wasn't doing it because anybody told him anything. Saul was doing it because of the evil of his own heart. Nobody had told him David was trying to kill him. Nobody had tried to set him against David. No. That came from Saul when he eyed David from that day forward. And so what happened with that, uh, just amazing, amazing thing. You might think about that phrase, that day forward. I just had a thought with it, Brother Robin. Saul eyed David from that day forward. And the Bible says when David was anointed, the Spirit of God came on him from that day forward. That day forward was different from both those fellows. Pretty amazing. There's a thought in there somewhere. Um, Then David committed vengeance and uh, judgment to the Lord. Now, let me give you something with this. Look in verse 12. Here's what David says to Saul. The Lord judge. The Lord judge. Between me and thee. And the Lord avenge me of thee, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. He's the only one who has a right to it. Vengeance is God's personal possession." If you take vengeance into your hands, if I take vengeance into my hand or my heart, I have stolen what is God's. And he said, it's mine. So why is that his territory? Ready for the, the obvious statement of it? Because he's the only one who can do it right. None of us ever has a full picture of anything we deal with. So that sounds pessimistic. Nope. Reality just looks like pessimism sometimes. (laughs) There are moments. I remember a fellow was saying to me once, smart fellow, he's involved in a lot of things, doesn't work with people a whole lot. And uh, I made a statement. I said, most people who come looking for advice aren't really wanting it, are not willing to follow it. And he said to me, he said, I I wouldn't agree with that. I said, you don't deal with very many people, do you? I guess I don't. I'm like, That might change your thought pattern if you did. God's the only one that can avenge us. We think we know. We assign motives to people. We come to conclusions off partial information. But God knows. And we were coming through the book of Romans in our reading here, we've been enjoying. Did you read that, Romans 14? Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. I'll tell you what. My wife said to me after she read it, she said, you read that this morning already? I said, yeah, I read that earlier this morning. She said, is that convicting? You? I said, that's convicting. I hope it convicts me real good. And so that's what happened here. He said, the Lord judge between me and thee. And he did that. And by the way, that shows you something. Look quickly over in 1 Peter. Don't lose your place there in Samuel. But look in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. By the way, if it's just a little warm or stuffy, I apologize for that. We do our best to get the building set properly. But if you think you're confused by this weather, you should see what it does to an HVA system. So it's kind of it's kind of confusing what happens. First Peter chapter two, talking about this thing about David committed vengeance and judgment to the Lord. And when I say committed to the Lord, what I mean by that is that he gave it to God instead of trying to do it himself. He stepped out of it. And uh, First Peter chapter two, verse twenty. Leads in with a question, it says, For what glory is it? If when you are buffeted, in other words, you suffer, if you are buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently. So the question is asked, What glory is in that? So, well, I took it patiently. Well, you you messed up, you should have. But if when you do well, now did David do well as a servant? He did exceedingly well. But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow His steps, who did no sin, by the way, while He was suffering who did no sin, neither was guile, which is deceit, treachery, found in His mouth. Who, when He was reviled, reviled not again. When He suffered, He threatened not. Look at this. What did Jesus do? But committed Himself to Him that judgeth righteously. Who His own self bear our sins in His own body on the tree that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. David committed vengeance and judgment to the Lord. <laughs> then he says a phrase, David says a phrase, which he will later hear said to him, that I believe could have been a source of confirmation to him that he had done the right actions. Because it'll be said to him years later. But maybe a reminder about that early day with God. That's in verse 14. Look in verse 14. As I told you, don't lose your place in 1 Samuel. Look in verse 14. Here's the question David asked Saul. After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom dost thou pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? That term dead dog is an unusual phrase. Stay in Samuel, but go to 2 Samuel chapter 9. Years have passed. 2 Samuel chapter 9. They. David was out there in the wilderness, said this statement, and the men around him and such. But the fellow who's getting ready to say that statement to David, he wasn't there at all. In fact, he wasn't born yet. But David, David was looking for someone to show kindness to on behalf of Jonathan. And he asked, is there anybody left of the family? And uh, they said, there's one. His name's Mephibosheth. He's crippled. When warfare broke out, the nurse, the lady who was taking care of him, dropped him. They crippled his legs. And uh, he lives down in Lodabar, which means the barren, cursed land. The land of dying cattle. Isn't that a beautiful name? They say he lives down in Lodabar. Old David, he sent down the royal chariots and such, scared Mephibosheth to death. He's like, oh no. Because, see, Mephibosheth knew he was of the household of Saul, knew he was of the lineage of Jonathan, and figured, trying to exterminate the bloodline here, maybe. Which would have been a natural thing. But that's not what David was doing. Then uh, look in 2 Samuel 9, and let's look then in verse 5. Then King David sent and fetched him out of the house of Meshur, the son of Amiel, from Lodibar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come unto David, he fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Behold thy servant. And David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father and, all, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually and he bowed himself and said what is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as myself King who are you coming out after? A dead dog? King David, I'm just a dead dog. Boy, you talk about divine confirmation that you've been on the right track. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That's a blessed thing. There's three ways that David trusted God during this time. Look in verse 15 again, back in our text in chapter 24. Remember our title is to be word-directed, not circumstance-led. Let's look at an example of how David trusted the Lord. Look in verse 15. And all three of them are in that verse. David said, The Lord therefore be judge, and judge between me and thee. And then here's where David trusted God. And see, and plead my cause, and deliver me out of thine hand. The three ways that David trusted God, he trusted God to see. He trusted God to see. Sometimes we get in a frame of mind we almost think that uh, because we don't understand why things are turning out the way they are or why things are where they are that somehow God can't see us. May I assure you tonight on the authority of the Word of God that He whose eye is on the sparrow will not be neglectful of those who are made in His own image. David trusted God to see. Job had that same kind of trust, didn't he? You remember the passage in Job where Job was trying to find God? He said, I went backwards, couldn't find him. He says, I heard him working on the left hand, went and he went in there, I heard him, saw him working on the right hand, went there and couldn't find him there. And he said, I couldn't find him. And then he came down. And he said, But he knoweth the way I take. He said, I couldn't find God, but God had me. And when he hath thrived, me, I shall come forth as gold. Old brother Job, he was in the hurt we can't even comprehend. And he said, Here's what's keeping me together right now. In fact, that's a good term, isn't it? Because his wife got angry. Because she said, Dost thou still maintain thine integrity? You're still together? Let me just teach you something fast. People who regularly freak out get angry at those who don't. He said, you still, She said, You still have your integrity? What's the matter with you? Why aren't you gone to pieces? You obviously don't care enough. I mean, that's the implication. Why didn't he come apart? Because he said, I have no idea what God's doing. I can't even seem to get a hold of God. But he knows where I am. There's a calm assurance that comes to know that we who are sinners and should go to a devil's hell have had the blood of Christ shed for us and have the love of God given to us. We can trust our Heavenly Father. And trust His goodness. He trusted Him to see. He trusted Him to plead. He said, let Him plead for me. That's an advocate. I love that name. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an advocate. We have somebody who stands up for us. Someone who speaks for us. I'm a person who's very reticent, a very, uh, I, I'm very reserved about letting somebody speak for me. I'm not talking about do something on behalf or I'm not afraid to delegate something. But if something needs explained, if a, a stance needs done, I want to do it myself. I'm very, very picky about having somebody speak for me on something. There have been plenty of people who have spoke for me without me asking them to. <laughs> That's always exciting. Um, but, why? Because I want to explain it. I want to give an emphasis. I want to watch the reaction. I want, to, I want to explain well what I mean and not be misunderstood. But when it comes to the bar of God, when it comes to the place of judgment, I have an advocate who is eloquent with His mercy beyond what I could ever be. I have nothing I can explain. I have no righteousness to offer. But He has all righteousness. I'm glad I have an advocate. And as Christ is my advocate, I feel very safe and very secure saying I want no part of trying to explain it. May the blood of Christ speak for me. May the Lord Jesus' righteousness cover me. And that's all I need. And that's all I want. That's all I have. So he trusted God to see. He trusted God to plead. Did He know Jesus is our High Priest? We've been reading a lot about Him with that, haven't we, in Hebrews? Do you know as our High Priest He ever liveth to make intercession for the saints? Not just as a body, but individually. You say, well, no person could keep up with all that. i are not talking about any person. I'm talking about the Lord. And He can do that. And then He trusted Him to deliver. He trusted Him to deliver. Well, my trouble didn't go away. That may not have been deliverance. Trouble going away is not always deliverance. Deliverance doesn't always make trouble go away. Another man chosen of God centuries later will pen words from the Holy Ghost about God's ability and willingness to deliver. I want you to see those words. Look in 2 Corinthians 8. The man chosen of God was just a vessel. His name was Paul, but... Important one in the account here is the Lord. Second Corinthians eight or one rather. I may have said eight, but I didn't mean to it's the verse we're going to. Second Corinthians one. Begin verse eight, talking about he trusted God to deliver. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. We didn't think we were going to get out in life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust that He will yet deliver us. He's a God who has, He's a God who does, and He's a God who will deliver. Final reminder, how this meeting ended. Saul said some words to David, and of course he would not be true to them. David made a vow to Saul, which he kept. And David, in the wisdom of God, did not come down to Saul, but rather went on to the strongholds. Why? Because he knew though this moment had ended, his enemy, self-proclaimed enemy, David didn't view him as such, was not going to give up so easily on him. We need to be Word-directed, not circumstance-led, because we don't even have a full grasp of the circumstances. May God help us to have a full understanding of His Word. That would certainly be sufficient. Let me pray with you. Father, thank You for Your people tonight are gathering together to hear the Word. Thank You for the meat of Your Word. Pray You'll help us to be people who are dependent on You more than just in Word. May we actually be dependent on You. Bless this invitation for your own purposes within people's hearts. I pray that you'll bless now, ask in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together, please. Something you want to bring before the Lord. Now would be a good time for you to have some fellowship, some communion with the Lord. will not you come ahead as the piano begins to play.